In his latest book, Stanley Fish says arguing is an unavoidable part of human nature. The book is Winning Arguments: What Works and Doesn't Work in Politics, the Bedroom, the Courtroom, and the Classroom. And in it, he writes: Argument is everywhere. Argument is unavoidable. Argument is interminable. Argument is all we have. So, with those odds, we have invited Mr. Fish, who's currently a visiting professor at the Cardozo School of Law, to today's. Please explain segment to teach us about arguments and give us some advice about how to win one or two of them. His book is published by Harper. I'm very pleased it has brought Stanley Fish back to our show. Hello. How are you? I'm well, uh, and I don't want to argue about it. Uh, we we also uh, invite our listeners uh, who may want need some help in convincing the people in their lives of something, whether it's an uncle who won't stop talking about the political candidate that makes you cringe the coworker that stands in the way of your business decisions or whatever, you can give us a call at 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at wmic.org slash lopate or tweet us to at Leonard Lopate. Uh, Professor Fish, you are a lawyer, and we hoped our lawyer, uh, we all hope that our lawyer is going to be good at arguing. Do you think that some people are predisposed to being better arguers than others? First of all, I'm not a lawyer. I'm a law professor, so that I'm a law professor without lawyerly credentials. And that's an entire other story, which we won't have time to talk about today. Well, professors uh, also engage in arguments, uh, yes. often well, with their professors students. professors necessarily engage in arguments, because the entire point of the academic enterprise is to, quote-unquote, advance knowledge. And in order to do that, you first have to sum up uh, the situation vis-a-vis uh, -vis knowledge in the field at the present moment, and then propose something that you believe to be better. In short, the very act of putting yourself forward in the academic world necessitates your making an argument. You say in the book that it's hard to engage in argument in the abstract. There has to be something tangible to argue about? Yes. I mean, there are some exceptions to this. You can practice arguing. You can have you know, arguments in which neither of the parties is, is committed uh, to, to any of the positions, uh, but they're just trying arguments out or trying to sharpen up uh, each other's arguments. Uh, but the more general case uh, uh, for argument is when some matter arises about which two or more people disagree. You mentioned a Monty Python skit about how difficult it is to have an argument about nothing. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's the sketch in which the uh, uh, the uh, central figure goes in and says, I want to have an argument. Um, and uh, then uh, he ends up immediately, not ends up, but it, within seconds he's in an argument with the person he's talking to about what an argument is. Uh, so even though he wants to have an argument that doesn't have content, the, um, the question of argument itself becomes the content. Many arguments begin with something as simple as, you didn't rinse out that cup and then wind up transitioning into, your mother never liked me. Actually, it could even be worse than that. You could say something that you think perfectly innocent, like, uh, I wish we went to the movies more. Uh, and that could be interpreted as your, by your spouse and partner as a criticism. And you come back and say, no, it wasn't a criticism, and I didn't mean that at all, which, of course, doesn't defuse the argument, but only gives it more fuel. And arguing is a 
tricky business because, as you say, you can neither avoid argument when it's offered to you nor extricate yourself from it on your own terms. Is there any way to diffuse a situation early on? I mean, is it impossible to walk away without further infuriating the other person? More often than not, the gesture of walking away will also infuriate the other person, Uh, especially when you say something like, okay, all right, by which you obviously mean I stand by my position, but I'm not going to bother to discuss it with you any longer. The person you're talking to knows that that's what you've said, and so the gesture of walking away from the argument is just another stage in the argument. Along these lines, uh, a listener, Robert, writes on our show page, how do you win or resolve an argument if you don't want to argue when the other person persists on argument for the sake of it and you just want to agree or to disagree? Well, (laughs) the best argument stopper that uh, I know of, uh, in literature at least, um, is the title figure in Melville's story, Bottleby the Scrivener, uh, where Bottleby, who is a clerk, is asked by his employee to do something, in fact, do anything, and he always has the same answer. I would prefer not to. And then when he's asked for an explanation of his unwillingness to do something, he says, I would prefer not to. And then when he's, he's, he's asked, where were you, tell me where you would, were born, he says, I would prefer <laughs> not to. Uh, so that's a, that's a totally successful way of deflecting argument, which, of course, has the effect of making the person you're not arguing with more furious than ever. Would you recommend that I start doing that? No. Uh, there's n- unfortunately, I have no recommendations. <laughs> Uh, to offer. Uh, My only message in the book, if that's the word, is that you're not going to be able to avoid arguments and that there is in the world no safe place in relation to which the dangers of arguments uh, can be nullified or at least mitigated. You write that something like a smear campaign might be highly effective in politics but would be unacceptable in, say, an, an academic context, not to mention at home. That's right. Uh, the th- one of the truths about argument is that what is and is not an effective or appropriate argument will vary given the uh, context or profession or, or discipline you happen to be operating in. And that's why when you enter a field, whether it's the domestic field of marriage or the field of friendship or, uh, or a professional field of medicine, the academy or law, you have to learn In addition to learning the obvious rules of the game, you have to learn the rules of argument. How do we argue here? And what kind of arguments, if you make them here, will mark you as someone who doesn't belong here? You say that there are three types of good persuasion, logos, ethos, and pathos. Uh, Does it matter that they're all Greek? Uh, Yes, because they're all derived from Aristotle. It's all Greek to me. Yeah, they're all derived from Aristotle's rhetoric, which still is the seminal uh, document in the, in the study of argument and rhetoric. Briefly, logos means the reasons that you give which are logically strong uh, on their own, supposed that they stand on their own. Uh, the argument from pathos um, is the uh, argument in which you appeal to the passions or prejudices or known likes and dislikes of the members of your audience. And the argument from ethos is the argument you make by trying to make yourself an attractive person. 
presenting yourself to the audience as someone that audience should trust. Mm-hmm. So those are the three, those are the three components uh, of argument. But everyone who writes on argument always wishes that there were only logos, only logical arguments, and that we could get rid of all of this illegitimate uh, appeal of confected personality and, uh, and the uh, 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 pandering to biases. Because they sound manipulative. Yes. In fact, they do sound manipulative. But the, at the end of this uh, uh, insight is waiting the further insight that there's no alternative to manipulation. Or to put it into the political terms that we've learned to use uh, in the past 20 years or so, there's no alternative to spin. Let's take some calls. A lot of people are excited about this. Uh, they want to argue their cases. Donna from Scotch Plains. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. Um, whoops, something's happening with my phone. I'm sorry, can you hear me? Yes. Hi, I'm sorry. Um, yes, I get very passionate and emotional when I discuss politics or current events or world affairs with family members or friends. And I get. I feel like I get such so passionate where I think I'm offending or insulting people, and I really want to learn to be able to discuss these volatile topics in a more calm and neutral tone, like the way you do, Leonard. Sometimes when you're discussing these topics with guests, you seem to be able to remain calm and neutral. And But at home sometimes, or with friends, if I get passionate, my voice tends to rise a bit, and uh, sometimes, without even realizing it... Uh, and somebody will say, no need to yell. Okay. Um, and I, I feel like I, can, I will be insulting um, or uh, offending people because I just sometimes can't believe their point of view. And I'll say, mm. I can't believe you would think that. Well, that's a whole other issue. You want to respond, Professor Fish? Well, I want to say, first of all, that calmness, while it might be a virtue in some contexts, uh, it's not going to be a virtue in another. Uh, later today, President Obama will make some kind of statement about the event, events in France uh, last evening. And uh, his personality tends to be calm and reflective. But if he is calm and reflective this afternoon, he will be criticized for being calm and not for being uh, sufficiently passionate uh, and outraged as some voters want him to be. There is no preferred way of arguing, no magic key that will uh, allow you to make your way unscathed. We're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we have lots of people calling in, and I have lots of questions for you as well. We are talking with Stanley Fish. Uh, His latest book is Winning Arguments, What Works and Doesn't Work in Politics, The Bedroom, The Courtroom, and The Classroom. It's published by Harper. We're back on Please Explain with Stanley Fish, visiting Florsheimer Distinguished Professor of Law at Cardoza Law School in New York City, and the Davidson Kahn Distinguished University Professor and a Professor of Law at Florida International University. His latest book, Winning Arguments, What Works and Doesn't Work in Politics, the Bedroom, the Courtroom, and the Classroom. It is published by Harper. And we are taking calls. Our number here is 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at wmyc.org slash Lopate or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Peter from the Bronx, you're on the air. Yes, hi. 
Um, I have two questions. Um, unless it's an academic exercise, the point of arguing something is to change somebody's mind. And you make a distinction. I mean, I could win an argument by some third-party standard, and yet the other person is just more confirmed in their point of view that they walked in with. Um, my second question relates to that, which is when you say winning an argument, it implies some objective standard or some judge. And what is that all about? Two excellent questions. I think the, your point in the first, in the context of your first question is absolutely right. And I make the distinction between persuading to a point and persuading to a vision. Persuading to a point may occur when a skillful arguer has reduced you to silence and you have nowhere to go, so you have to be, at least on the record, persuaded. But you're really not. Just a point has been won against you. If you're persuaded to a vision, which is a much more, uh, a much deeper thing and, and occurs more ra rarely, your whole way of looking at things has undergone a change. Uh, so persuading to a vision is more like uh, conversion. Most of our political arguments that occur, let's say, on TV or in campaign rallies or debates are persuading to point uh, arguments because, as I think we all know, almost no one's vision is ever changed by those events. Uh, and as for an objective way to determine whether or not an argument has been won, you're quite correct. Uh, there uh, is none. Uh, and in fact, people find themselves having won arguments, they think, and uh, a short time later they realize that by winning they have lost. This is certainly true in marriage. Any time in marriage when you've won an argument, you've lost. Because that has led to resentment? Yeah, and because it it has it has uh, continued the notion that the point of the discussion is for someone to win, rather than the point being to reassume or recapture the connection uh, between partners that has been ruptured by the argument. So a winner never repairs the rupture; only confirms the rupture. Well, this might uh, cause problems in uh, a marital dispute, but you say one of the, the keys to persuasiveness is to establish yourself as an authority. Yes. Uh, if it works, uh, that is, it, it's, you have to be able to get away with it. Establishing yourself as an authority is, an, is, is a rhetorical act. Uh, you try to use something about yourself or about your credentials of pedigree or family uh, to in, a, in essence, give you a heads-up, uh, a lead in the argument uh, or discussion. Uh, one, one small example that I use is when the 11-year-old boy asks his mother if he can go uh, down to the mall with the rest of his friends, and she says no. And he says, why not? Meaning, give me a reason. And she says, because I said so. That is, she's a trading on the authority uh, of being a mother, something that probably worked better 30 to 40 years ago than it does today. Can backing away from authority also be an effective arguing tactic? Uh, for example, you hear people say, well, I'm no expert, but, or uh, in the case of politicians, that's become particularly popular. I'm no scientist, but. You can do that, to say, I'm no expert, but, uh, and then you present something which suggests that you know more than the experts. 
that's the whole point of that game. Those people who say, I'm no scientist, are usually uh, in the game of dismissing what scientists say. So that I'm no scientist, comma, but common sense tells me, and I wanted to tell you uh, such and such. That there is no such thing as climate change. So exactly, that's one of the, one of the examples. But again, all of these strategies can be turned against the person uh, who uses them. They can they can migrate from one side of the argument uh, to the other. You can't possibly make a list of effective strategies uh, that will work not only in every context but even in small delimited uh, contexts. The game of argument is always changing, and you have to be alert to the changes. That makes argument, discussion, debate, whatever you call it, an almost athletic experience. Donna from New Jersey, you're on the air. Hi. Um, it's been my experience that uh, if you can find a kernel of truth that you can agree with in the other person's argument and tell them that you agree, it kind of deflects and diffuses the argument right away because they're really left with nothing to say if you agree with them. I think that's a good strategy. I agree with you. It's a good strategy to start by pointing out the area of agreement uh, between you. But that, too, can be quickly seen as a strategy, as the person on the other end of the discussion sees you moving toward a point of disagreement uh, and then will regard what you said when uh, you acknowledge the truth of something uh, uh, of what he said. We'll see that uh, merely as, as a piece of strategy as a ploy. I had a friend who used to say, everything after but is baloney. <laughs> so you, I agree, I agree, I agree, but, and then, of course, from then on, the other person's dismissing anything you say. Uh, absolutely. It's a question of with what ears do you hear? Uh, if you are so committed to a viewpoint uh, or to a side um, in, in, a, in the political sense, then all you can hear when the other side speaks, uh, is mistake or error. That's, that's all you can hear. And that's what's happened in our present political configuration, where argument has now degenerated uh, into talking points, and everybody has his or her talking points uh, neatly lined up. And so what happens is there's an exchange of talking points, but neither party has ever been moved for a second to reconsider a basic position. Amy from Manhattan. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. Um, a lot of times when I get into arguments, um, I know my position, but I can't really express it well, and I think of just the right thing to say you know, a couple hours later. Or sometimes even I do think of what I, what I need to say, and I just kind of feel caught on the spot and, uh, and, and can't bring it up. Uh, so does the professor have any, any advice on that? Yeah, I can suggest a couple of things. First of all, when you find yourself in that position, when you, you know that you have a point you'd like to make it, but you can't quite formulate it, um, ask for time, in effect, by asking a question. That is, ask the person who's uh, just said something to clarify it. And people are always willing to clarify uh, what they do. And the uh, time in which the other person uh, does qualify what he or she has just said uh, might be enough for you uh, to uh, have a stronger sense of your own uh, stronger sense of your own point. So you know, not even listening to the other person, you're just simply uh, formulating your response while the well, other person babbles on for a while. No, no, not 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 quite that bad. Uh, you're doing both <laughs> at the same. You're doing both at the same time. 
it's, it, it requires a certain kind of agility. Uh, the other thing is to, it, the way often to uh, encapsulate, that is, crystallize your own arguments, is to have an example or an anecdote that for you really hits the mark or makes the point. And if you can get the anecdote, your anecdote, introduced as the basis of discussion, um, you will uh, be in a more secure position. And what about metaphors? Oh, sure. Uh, you know, metaphors uh, uh, can be very useful, comparisons, similes. Uh, as figures of speech, um, they are all potentially effective, but they are also all uh, potentially uh, challengeable uh, and uh, even uh, attackable. And someone will start saying to you, just please speak plainly. No metaphors, please. Don't try to confuse me. And what about speaking plainly? Is that the best approach? After all, in a law court, lawyers tend to try to speak as plainly as possible because they want to win the case. Well, it would be a nice uh, strategy to speak plainly, except that, at least in my view, speaking plainly is not a possibly, uh, possible human activity. <laughs> that is because speaking plainly means speaking in ways that are not shadowed by your particular set of histories, educational, theological, commercial, whatsoever. Speaking plainly means that you could speak from no point of view and your words uh, would just uh, leap out of your mouth or off the page in ways that no one could mistake. Uh, for that, I have the usual New Jersey reply, forget about it. Uh, it can, can't be done and it never will be done. Speaking plainly is, like anything else, a strategy, not the way to step to the side of strategy. A listener writes on our show page, there's a problem in arguing with someone who cannot differentiate between fact and opinion. Is there some way to instruct that person in the difference so that the argument can also take place on a level field? And then that listener adds, what do you do when the person with whom you're arguing makes points that are completely illogical? There's no real winning of an argument without facts and logic, but a lack of logic on one side of the discussion or the argument is problematic. That's an excellent question, to which I will say there's no such thing as a distinction between fact and opinion. Or, soften it a bit, there is a distinction between fact and opinion, but uh, that distinction is one that is itself forged in argument. Uh, Senator Monaghan of New York famously said, you are entitled to your own opinions, but not to your own facts. But you are entitled to your own facts if you can make them stick um, in the course of some debate uh, or conversation, because that's the only place where facts come into view, at the end of argument, not before argument. So the general reliance on a fact-opinion distinction, let's just stick to the facts and then uh, we can't go wrong, depends on the idea that you can identify the facts before the argument begins, but almost always the argument is about what the facts are. Well, there are certain things that are outright facts, like is the world round? No, there are not. But that the world isn't round? Uh, I'm not saying that the world isn't round. Here's what I'm saying. But, but I would just think about the gray areas, like should the United States legalize marijuana? That's a much more of an opinion thing. No, 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 no. I, I reject that uh, distinction, I'm afraid. That is, what I would say about things like the world is round or that Elvis doesn't live or that we did 
land on the moon or the Holocaust did occur. Uh, all of those are facts to which I will happily subscribe. But there are millions of people who believe the reverse of each of these things, as you know, and what do you say to them? What do you say well, to somebody you, who says that President Obama was born in Kenya? Absolutely. What do you say to them? There's nothing that you can say to them. That is, there is no set of independent facts so strong and so obvious that people with a view that you consider outlandish will suddenly say, oh, yeah, I see, my view is outlandish. I, I, I hereby give it up. Never happens. You compare the language of Donald Trump during the political campaign with the writings of the great 16th century scholar Michel de Montaigne. Oh, why? Are they well, all that different? Yeah, they, of course, are finally very different human beings. But what uh, joins them uh, is the idea that Montaigne put forward in his essays when he presented himself as speaking plainly and not planning from sentence to sentence what he was going to say. He said, I open up my mouth and what comes out I record. And uh, if what I said now contradicts what I said a few moments ago, that's the kind of person I am. So that he presents the first defense of what we might call the essayistic style. And essay means to try. So he tries out something, and then he tries out something else, then he tries out something else. There's no plan or coherence, and you never know what he's going to say. Well, I've just described what some people critically uh, describe as uh, Trump's speaking style. You never know what he's going to say. There's no necessary connection between what he said a moment ago and what he says now. Topics come out of left field and go away again as quickly as they came and so forth. That's the Montaigne style. Now, we don't have much time, but uh, since we're talking politics, uh, compromise, is that uh, a good way to end an argument? Yeah, compromise is a good way to end an argument for a while because what happens in compromise uh, is that you seize upon some small area of agreement, and this gets us back to a, an earlier question, um, and then you build for the moment a uh, coalition, let's say, uh, that will allow the enterprise to go forward. But it's always a temporary solution because that kind of compromise will always be upended when the deeper issues that have for a while uh, been set aside or skirted uh, rise up uh, and, again. And, and we have to leave it there. Falls. Unfortunately, Stanley Fish, his book, Winning Arguments, What Works and Doesn't Work in Politics, the Bedroom, the Courtroom, and the Classroom, published by Harper. Thank you so much.